On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. On March 16, 2009, police arrested Robin Cho and charged him with the triple murder of Cherise Hong, her two-year-old son, and Eunshik Min, the nanny. As Cho sat in jail, the charges were modified. Prosecutors added firearm charges and special circumstances. According to the California Penal Code, if a defendant is convicted of more than one offense of murder in the first or second degree, then the penalty is, quote, death, or imprisonment in the state prison for life, without possibility of parole. These killings were brutal, so it wasn't a surprise to anyone when the district attorney expressed her intent to seek the death penalty against Robin Cho. The stakes were high. What would the jury decide? Did Robin Cho commit these crimes? I'm Sharon Choi. And I'm Ben Adair. This is Strangeland, Season 1, The Koreatown Murders. This is episode five, The Trial. So, Sharon, I know it takes a really long time for cases to go from arrest to trial. Cho was arrested in March 2009, but when did his trial actually start? Not for over three years. Opening statements wouldn't happen until May 2nd, 2012. Wow. So let's start from the beginning. Robin Cho's in police custody. What does he do? I mean, I would assume first thing, call a lawyer. Yeah. Robin Cho retained the services of a law firm called Flyer and Flyer, a father-son duo. Theodore Flyer, the father, was a longtime criminal defense attorney. He had been doing cases for decades. Andrew Flyer is his son, a former prosecutor with a lot of experience on death penalty cases. 
did a five death penalty trials, and I will brag about my best accomplishment. This is Andrew Flyer. His father passed away several years ago. I'm the youngest person in the history of the United States to put someone in death row. I did my first death penalty case. I was only 28, and I was the only prosecutor on the case. After seven years as a prosecutor, Andrew had joined his dad on the other side of the courtroom. Okay, so how does this work? The prosecution is busy building its case. What's the defense doing? Well, a few things. First, the defense is studying. They're going over everything the prosecution has collected, all the evidence and data. This is called the discovery. They don't get to know anything about what the prosecution is going to say about this evidence, but they do get all the raw materials. The second thing they're doing is investigating. A good defense team will have their own investigator to help build the defense. My name is uh, George Patrick Little. I was the investigator of record, the defense investigator for attorney Andrew Flyer for the People versus Robin show. George Little is retired now. It actually took us a really long time to find him. We tracked him from his former home in Lancaster, California, to we heard he was in a fishing village just north of Cabo San Lucas in Mexico. We finally got him on the phone in Alamo Gordo, New Mexico. Wow. I guess former private eyes aren't out there exactly broadcasting their lives on the internet. No, they really aren't. So the flyers called George Little, the investigator, and what's his job? What do they ask him to do? Number one, investigate the crime and find holes in the prosecution's case. And number two, investigate Robin Cho's alibi and make the argument that it could not have been him. Little's first stop is the L.A. County Jail. He was always extremely polite, very quiet. He always professed his innocence. There was never anything that would have led you to believe that he was admitting to any of this or he was guilty in any way. I believed him. I believed that he didn't have anything to do with this homicide. I mean, let's face it, 90, 95, 95% of the time, maybe even more than that, When I get called in to represent somebody that's involved in a criminal case as a defense investigator, 95 to 100 percent of the time they've committed the crime, they were involved, and it's just clearly my role is to develop some degree of mitigation to say that, no, it wasn't really as bad as what they were charged with, but this was clearly somebody that was not guilty, that didn't do the crime. He also indicated that he had kept a record of his whereabouts on the day of the incident. Right. Okay, here we go again. Robin Cho's ever-evolving alibi. Yes. By the time Cho finished talking with the police, his whereabouts on the day of the murders included trips to a stamp collecting store, a post office, his brother's dental office, a McDonald's, and to TJ Maxx to look for golf shoes. So Little's job is to investigate that, to find people who can corroborate. But a lot of time had passed before Little even got on the case. And so he started running into problems. We went to all those different locations and we could never really verify 
the alibi. And uh, the guy that had been in business uh, with the stamp collecting, yeah, because it was six years later, he was long gone. We couldn't find him. And uh, the McDonald's, I mean, how do you find six years later, how do you verify an alibi at a McDonald's? And the golf shoes the same way. There was just no way to really verify that alibi. Okay, so next, I guess, is try to knock down the prosecution's case. Yeah. So Little and Flyers start to investigate the crimes. The two biggest pieces of evidence are the DNA on the gloves found at the crime scene and the bullets Cho discarded on the day of his interrogation. So that's what they prioritize. First, they go to the apartment building where the murders took place. Cho's only explanation about how his DNA got in the crime scene is that somebody must have stolen his latex gloves. Right, he said he used latex gloves when he washed his car and changed his oil, and then he kept them in a box near his parking space. Somebody must have found the gloves in the box, and that's how they made their way to the crime scene. Yeah, so Little and Flyer wanted to check that out. Was that possible? Flyer and I went over to the building, and we walked all, all around the lower level of the building, looked for various things to see if we couldn't enlighten ourselves as to what the, what the garage looked like and, and all of that. I think we looked at the, the gates, the opening and the closing of the gates and how they were activated. It was clear that if somebody was outside the gate and somebody was trying to get in with a vehicle and they clicked open the gate that somebody could run in behind them and get into the, get into the building. So the building really wasn't secure uh, from intrusion. Okay, so maybe possible. Next, Little looked into the bullets that Cho tried to dispose of in the parking lot of the Ross Dress for Less on the day he was interrogated by LAPD. Right, I've been, I've been thinking about those bullets. They were the same caliber as the murder weapon. And when detectives confronted Cho about them, he said that he had gotten them at a shooting range. So Little tried to confirm that too. He said that he had picked them up at a, at a range. It was out uh, near... La Puente or something. But I went out there and I couldn't find the range or validate that he could have been out there to pick up those rounds from that location. So, no dice on that. It seems like they're not exactly answering a lot of questions here. No. And so, while Little's investigating, the Flyers are arguing with the prosecution. We objected to everything. This is Andrew Flyer again. So I do a lot of writing, and I try to exclude the issue of the financial crime, the admissibility of any typewriter, any other type of evidence that I knew the people would focus on. There are dozens of court hearings leading up to the actual trial, where the defense is trying to knock down what they think the prosecution's arguments are going to be. They're also arguing to exclude evidence, data, and other things like a defendant's prior record. All of those points are argued and ruled on and sometimes counter-argued in written docs and in the courtroom. And all that takes time. A long time. Yeah, I'm starting to see how this could take three years. They argue to disallow the Ross Dress for Less bullets. It's a fairly common caliber, and they were discovered six years after the shooting, 
Clearly, they're not relevant. Agreed, says the judge. The bullets are out. They argue against photos of the coroner's exam of the bodies. Denied, says the judge. The photos are in. They argue about Cho's previous crimes. It was a Ponzi scheme, the prosecution says. He defrauded millions of dollars. No, it wasn't, the flyers argue, and it has absolutely nothing to do with these crimes. On this one, the judge sides mostly with the prosecution. The judge will allow witnesses and evidence about Cho's financial fraud, but the prosecution may not call it a Ponzi scheme, and they can't mention his convictions. Instead, lawyers and witnesses can only refer to bad investments. Oh, okay. So it seems like Cho's defense is doing okay as the case is heading towards trial. They got a few points on Cho's explanation about the latex gloves and a point and a half on exclusion of evidence, but they got nothing for Cho's alibi. Sure, but Little told me, regardless, he was confident. He did not think Cho would get convicted, let alone sent to death row. I, I didn't think there was any chance that he would be convicted of this. I mean, the great nexus, of course, was the fact that his DNA came back on the plastic gloves. But this other stuff about financial crimes and bullets that he had in his possession and no weapon and uh, no showing of him ever having uh, fired guns or been around guns or been involved in violent acts of any kind, uh, to me, uh, there was no way he was going to be convicted. Finally, the trial date is set, May 2nd, 2012. Over three years since Robin Cho was arrested, and almost exactly nine years since the murders. So both sides are as ready as they can be, and the trial of Robin Cho is about to begin. That's coming up after the break. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Opening statements and the trial of Robin Cho took place on May 2nd, 2012. It was just shy of the nine-year anniversary of the murders. The prosecution strategy was all about showing the real Robin Cho. This, this crime was so much about who he was. This is Deputy DA Frank Santoro. 
He's now the assistant head deputy in the juvenile division for the LA County District Attorney's Office. This guy was such a sophisticated fraudster, and he had committed numerous, numerous counts of fraud. He had deceived people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he eventually, his world imploded. And I still think, and what I argue to the jury is, he went into that home to commit basically a burglary, got surprised by the nanny and the kid, killed them because he doesn't want his life to come out, and then the wife came home, and she's killed. Okay. So how does Santoro present his case? Basically, it goes in three parts. First, he details the crimes and the victims. Then, part two, he pivots to Robin Cho to build the case that he's someone capable of committing these crimes. And then part three is the crux of this case, the DNA evidence. Okay, let's dig in. So part one, the crimes. He starts with pretty much everything we went over in episode one. The photos of the apartment and the murders, testimony from the cops on the scene. The witnesses, mostly cops, talk about how there was no sign of forced entry, nothing reported stolen. And he shows the photos with the latex glove fragments stuck to the tape used to tie up the mother, Therese Song. Yeah, these are the glove fragments with Cho's DNA on them. Yes, remember, Cho says he kept latex gloves in an unsecured box in his parking space. He said he used gloves whenever he cleaned his car, changed the oil, etc. Well, after Cho's arrest, police went to his new apartment to see if he kept any gloves near his car there. Cho had moved after the murders, and police didn't find any latex gloves near his car. And a police officer testified to that. Hmm. Okay. Then, the prosecution brings in a piece of evidence we have not talked about. A palm print that was also found on the tape in the crime scene. A palm print in the tape? Was, was it a match for Cho? No, Cho was excluded. Hmm. But this was a controversial palm print, it turns out. LAPD criminalists had initially matched the palm print to the husband, Pyong Sung. To the husband, really? But after further review, LAPD decided that no, it did not match. Santoro brought it up in trial because he wanted to head off any arguments about Pyong Song being involved in the crime. One of the defense theories that they sort of tried to put forward is that uh, the husband was involved in it, maybe hired someone to kill someone. I not only had to prove that Cho was guilty, I had to disprove that Byung did the murder. So in trial, the prosecution calls 10 experts, all of whom say the print's either inconclusive or not a match for the husband. As further evidence of Pyong's innocence, Santoro presented testimony on something that happened back in 2009. On the day that LAPD interrogated Robin Cho and ultimately arrested him, they also interrogated Pyong Song. In that interrogation, quote, Detective McCartan attempted to elicit a confession by telling Pyong that Cho had said Pyong paid him to commit the crimes. Pyong denied any role in the killings. Next, the prosecution moves on to part two of its case, all about Robin Cho. What people ask about this case of, oh my God, and is it him, is it not? 
And there's a ton of evidence that points to him. It's obvious there is a long list of a million different things other than the DNA that make it clear as day to me that he is the killer. And they start with the tip letter. The tip letter. But that was all about song, about how he had a girlfriend, sent her to New York, hired Hitman from Korea, and then the two names that the cops couldn't make anything of, Scott Song and Jay Lee. How does that implicate Cho? So the prosecutor makes two arguments. First, he says that Cho was acting strange on the day the cops interviewed him. At one point, Cho asked investigator Scott Peck, quote, Did anybody allege something about me? Like somebody sending a letter, alleging me as someone who did it? Okay, but the tip letter was about Song, not Cho. Right. But the LAPD officers thought Cho asking that was strange. Santoro says it points to a guilty conscience. It's not normal behavior. So the fact that he says in an interview, did someone send a letter about me? And coincidentally, six years earlier, someone sent a letter saying the real killers are these two made-up names and that it's because uh, Byung has a girlfriend. He said that because he's the kind of guy that sends those letters. And he knew about it. And it was scaring him. And he was worried about it. So that, I think it's a big deal. The next thing Santoro presents has to do with the searches that the LAPD did on the day they arrested Cho. They searched his apartment. And they also searched his mother's apartment. And there, at the mother's apartment, the police found a brother brand typewriter. So the prosecution brings an expert witness named William Lever to the stand. He's a forensic document examiner. And he testifies that the font on the letter is the same as the font on the confiscated typewriter. But because the actual letter was a photocopy, Lever testified that he couldn't say for sure whether or not it was an exact match for that exact typewriter. So even though they can't say it's a match... They're still here arguing that Cho sent the letter. Right. One of the slides they presented at trial reads, quote, Cho asks if someone sent a letter about him to the police. This is the kind of thing that someone would ask if they were the kind of person to send a letter. They is in all caps. Huh. So after talking about the tip letter, the prosecution gets down to business on Cho. Santoro calls witnesses to talk about his checkered financial past. I really wanted to have people understand how sophisticated he was, how elaborate his schemes were, how conniving he was, and how arrogant he was, and to a certain extent, how evil he was. They testify about bounced checks, about how they lost their life savings, about Cho not having the appropriate amount of remorse over what happened. And now that just played right into why is he going to someone's home looking for money? Why is he so desperate? The time of this murder occurred at the peak of when his life was falling apart. So that was sort of my theory of the case, and all the evidence pointed to that. The prosecution called Cho, quote, a desperate man who resorted to desperate measures. Right. They can't call it a Ponzi scheme, and they can't bring up his convictions but they're still painting a pretty gnarly picture. And then we get to the main event, part three of the case against Cho. 
the DNA. When you have DNA of someone at the crime scene, and such in this case where it's on the fingertips of the plastic gloves that are duct taped to the victim's mouth, I mean, that is powerful, powerful, strong evidence. So the prosecution calls a scientist named Angela Butler to the stand. Butler works at a lab called Serological Research Institute, or CERI. Originally, the LAPD had tested the evidence, but in preparation for trial, they sent the glove fragments, as well as some hairs found at the scene, to Siri for additional tests. Wait, hairs? We've talked about glove fragments before, but we've never talked about hairs. I know, but the hair doesn't go anywhere. The roots were too dry to test. But even if it did, according to the prosecution, it wouldn't matter. Even if other people's DNA was found at the scene. That wouldn't mean Cho's not guilty because it's Cho's DNA. So things like that come out, but it doesn't mean your guy is not the right guy or not guilty or make you think you're the wrong person. So the case really only focused on the glove fragments. Yes. In all, there were five latex glove fragments. Of those five, sample one didn't have any detectable DNA on it. Sample two was, quote, covered with the victim's blood, which makes testing for a suspect's DNA extremely difficult, unquote. Sample three was, quote, statistically insignificant. But samples four and five just nailed Cho. The DNA profile on sample four was, quote, 700 million times more likely to occur if defendant Cho is a second contributor. The language is a little weird, but it basically means it's Cho's DNA. And on sample five, the estimate was one in 319 million. Again, it's really Cho. I always say, what would I be thinking if I was on this jury? This is Andrew Flyer, Cho's attorney again. And I was always saying we're in trouble with the DNA. It's like that old ostrich defense. You can't put your big head in the sand and not see what's going around you. But I always knew in the back of my little brain, we got a big issue with the DNA. It's the climax of the prosecution's case. And shortly after that, they hand it over to the defense. They rest their case? Not quite. You see, the prosecutor had one last ace up his sleeve. That, plus the defense. Coming up after the break. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 
So in the case against Robin Cho, the prosecution had one big hole. The why. The motive. This was the defense's big opportunity. He had no motive. So he was able, smart, to bring up the issue of that prior case for motive that Mr. Cho's in financial difficulties, blah, blah. That's ridiculous. This is defense attorney Andrew Flyer. No blood evidence, no other physical evidence, no eyewitnesses, no confession, no admission, none of that. The prosecutor's whole case literally stemmed from the DNA result. And everything else, like the sprinkle down effect, was to corroborate so a juror could feel better about saying, hey, we have the DNA, we don't have motive, but he must be involved. So all those little other factors do come into play circumstantially about pointing to guilt or complicity. I just personally never was that worried about him because to me, especially as an ex-prosecutor who did DNA cases, people in death row, to me, it took more than just saying we have DNA. The defense was confident that jurors would see the difference between white-collar financial crime and this execution-style triple homicide. To me, there's no linkage between the two crimes. This is the defense investigator, George Little. Because one's financial and the other one is just uh, purely violent. Uh, you know, it's a murder. It's not nothing to do with a financial crime because there was never any, there was never any showing that Mr. Cho ever benefited financially from, from this uh, murder. So the whole case came down to we can't go after the husband, who we really is think is the only one who has motive, who has a girlfriend or something at the time, wants his family eliminated. But who is going to go... And I could understand, unfortunately, doing this job for 33 years about someone saying, hey, I want to get rid of my wife. I'm going to kill my wife. I'm going to hire you to kill my wife. A conspiracy, maybe. Whatever. Who's going to kill the two-year-old? Who is going to kill the baby? That's personal. That, that's to eliminate. And that's what the detectives thought, too. But is that Robin Cho, who, by the way, doesn't steal anything in the house? She had some jewelry, I remember, and some money and like a nice watch. And th it was all there. So what's his point? He got spooked and ran away? What, what's his whole point of going in there? So the defense calls its witnesses and argues back on motive. But they got to do something about the DNA, right? I mean, what can they do here? So finding the DNA evidence comes down to two big questions. Number one. Is that actually Robin Cho's DNA at the crime scene? If it isn't, you win. But if it is, then you get to the second question. How did Cho's DNA get there? Okay. So on the first point, the defense hired their own DNA expert, Mark Scott Taylor, to examine the tests made by LAPD in 2003 and Siri in 2011 and 2012. Flyer remembers that his conversations with Taylor did not go so well. Taylor didn't give him much to work with. I even went to Mr. Taylor, I remember in Ventura, just to have meetings with him about this case. Can we figure out a way to explain the DNA? We tried so hard, came back the exact same conclusions 
the exact same conclusions as the first analysis. So the flyers were faced with the decision, put their own DNA expert on the stand and risk having him come to the same conclusions as the prosecution or leave the DNA results unchallenged. When we were presenting the defense, we had Mr. Taylor come to the court. He met me. We didn't even want the DA to know he was in the building. If we were going to call Mr. Taylor, we were going to do it that day, of course, because he was there. And hey, here's Mr. Taylor. Frank, I know you've been studying DNA like me. Have fun with his cross. You know, Taylor, why are you going to call me? It's the exact same results. So we decided not to call him because the exact same results, we did not want the jury to affirm that again from the defense side. So we said, go home, don't even go up to the court. And he left. The Flyers never put a DNA expert on the stand. So since they concede that it's Cho's DNA at the crime scene, they get to the second question. How did it get there? If Cho didn't commit the murders, then how did his DNA get on the gloves found at the crime scene? So what Robin always said was similar to the fact that he worked on his cars, I remember. And you know, he didn't want the oil and stuff like that. So he had these type of latex gloves lying around. So we just presumed, just like he did, that maybe the killer was walking by, saw him or knew that he did it and they picked up his gloves. Now, did I think it went to the level where they're thinking, hey, if we take his gloves, hopefully his DNA is in the gloves. So if something does turn out, we can't be blamed. It's Robin Cho. I don't know if we went to that length because I don't know if that's believable, to be quite honest with you. So we had a great difficulty on the transfer issue, an explanation how Robin's DNA was in the mouth of the victims based on the tearing, obviously it teared based on the tape. You know, it's interesting. I even got different boxes of latex just to see, it, you know, let's say I put it on a hundred of them, which I probably did. How many broke? They would break. They would break. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that makes sense now about how it's in there. But we just could not explain sufficiently because maybe there was no answer about how it got there. So their big witness on the gloves was going to be Robin Cho's son. Before the trial, he had said yes. His dad kept gloves in the garage for working on his car. But when the flyers put him on the stand, maybe it was the pressure. We can't really know. But when flyer asks him, do you remember your father having these types of latex gloves in his parking stall? Under oath, Cho Sun says he can't remember. Do you remember your father wearing these kinds of gloves when he cleaned or worked on his car? Again, he says he can't remember. What about Robin Cho? Did he ever take the stand? No. We can't be sure why, but no. Cho never testified in his own defense. So the defense finishes its case, and despite failing on the gloves, they still feel pretty good about what they were able to accomplish on the motive question. But then, something odd happens. 
The prosecution calls one last major witness to the stand, LAPD Detective Brian McCartan, the lead investigator on the case. The detective you heard losing his temper in the interrogations. Huh? Isn't this out of order? I thought in trials the prosecution rested and then the defense takes their turn. Most of the time, that's how it goes. But here, McCartan was the last major witness the jury heard. Detective McCartan testified for two days. Walking through his initial investigation of Pyeongchar Song, the DNA hit that led them to Robin Cho, and their subsequent investigation of Cho. And as part of Detective McCartan's testimony, the prosecution plays for the jury the entirety of LAPD's interrogations of Cho. They give the transcript to the jury so they can follow along, like karaoke. Over the course of those interrogations, detectives McCartan and Shamlian, as well as investigator Peck, made over a hundred statements regarding the DNA evidence in the case. DNA does not lie. How can you contradict what the science tells us? Irrefutable DNA. It's the science telling us that we're there. It does not lie. The only way your DNA can get there is if you're there. There's only one DNA there, and that's from you. That's better evidence than a fingerprint. DNA is all over this. DNA is there. That, you can't refute that. More evidence than you could imagine against you in this. Your DNA is there. You're screwed. The only way it's going to get there is because you're there. DNA is big time. You were there. That's the nail in your coffin right there. That's the last straw. You can't refute DNA, 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 DNA. Midway through the tape of the interrogations, the Flyers made a motion for a mistrial. Andrew Flyer argues to the judge, quote, this transcript is so prejudicial that the jury is going to believe that the science is a fact and that Mr. Cho must be guilty. His dad, Theodore Flyer, followed up, quote, your honor, when you hear the rest of it, if you don't grant the mistrial motion, you'll see he goes over and over this. It's not like he asked him one or two times. It's the whole tape. But the motion for mistrial is denied. Detective McCartan's testimony came to an end. And in closing arguments, Prosecutor Santoro tells the jury, motive doesn't matter. I pointed out in closing argument that, you know, unlike TV, you know, there doesn't have to be motive. You never have to prove a motive. And that's what I tried to get across to the jury is that just because the motive is confusing, please don't mistake that with the evidence being confusing, because the evidence was far from confusing. The evidence was very powerful. He puts up a slide that says, quote, we don't know why, and we probably never will. Does it matter? Defense wants you to think, because we don't know why, we don't know what. And that is absolutely not the case. Motive may tend to prove, but here, it doesn't. Here, what is all you need? He tells them, who cares why Mr. Cho committed this murder? He says, he put on those gloves for whatever reason. He went into that house for whatever reason. And he pulled the trigger six times. Jury deliberations began on June 19, 2012, and lasted for six days. And after deliberating, the jury returned with a verdict. For the murders of Eun-sik Min and the two-year-old boy, Robin Cho was found guilty 
of second-degree murder. And for the murder of Therese Tong, Cho was found guilty of first-degree murder. I was very upset on that case. I heard the verdict and I got up and threw something in the trash can angrily. I was very unhappy. I, I just was very disappointed about that case. Literally like maybe two or three years later, maybe a little more, I was in the Glendale courthouse and there was a gentleman in the, in the audience and he's looking at me, right? And I'm thinking, why is he looking at me? I, I, it was weird. So I walk out and he comes up to me, follows me out. Are you Mr. Flyer? I say, yes. I was a juror on the Robin Cho case. I looked at him right away because I'll never forget the case. I go, what happened? I thought I had it. You could not get around the DNA and he walked away. To this day, right now, I'm not sure he did it. And I'm not one of those guys. I just told you 10 minutes ago, 90% are guilty. I just can't explain the DNA. I never will, maybe. Unless you can retest the DNA with new techniques, because what, this was what, 17, 18 years ago? So I, I, I just, I don't think there'll ever be an answer. The jury had found Robin Cho guilty, but their role in the case was not over. In our next episode, the jury decides life without parole or the death penalty. Will Robin Cho pay the ultimate price? It is an unfathomable decision. I would imagine that it probably haunts people for decades. That's on the next episode of Strangeland, produced by Western Sound. And it starts right now. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.